This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. What if you're a new first grade teacher and you realize the methods that you're using to teach your students to read just aren't working? And then you discover these teaching approaches, they've been proven ineffective for many kids, but they're still in use anyway. A new documentary film follows a teacher in just that situation, as well as other educators in Oakland, California, who have banded together to advocate that school systems there and across the country be required to offer only curriculum for reading that's been scientifically proven to work. At the center of this activism, and the heart of this film, is the work of Kareem Weaver, who has been a teacher, a principal, and is now leading a petition effort through the NAACP to force school administrators to end the use of discredited reading curricula. The documentary is called The Right to Read, and it's making the film festival circuit these days, including a recent screening at the South by Southwest EDU Festival. You may have heard about this issue before. It's an ongoing issue that recently jumped into the national spotlight thanks to a popular public radio podcast called Sold a Story by the journalist Emily Hanford. That podcast investigates a few educators and a publisher who have made a small fortune selling schools on an approach to reading instruction that's based on a concept called whole language, which has been proven ineffective for many children. The right to read doesn't just go over the same ground as that podcast, though it cites Emily Hanford's work and she is interviewed in the film. Instead, this new documentary steps back to take a broader look and casts literacy as a social justice issue, as the latest front line in the battle for civil rights in America. Because as Weaver and the film make clear, these failing efforts to teach reading disproportionately affect children of color. According to stats from the California Department of Education, only 19% of African-American students in Oakland are reading at grade level, while 73% of white students are reading at level there. When I was in Austin last month for South by Southwest EDU, I sat down with the film's director, Jenny McKenzie. And as you'll hear, talking to her led me to seek out one of the main characters in the film, myself. I started by asking the filmmaker how she came to tell this particular story. Well, reading is personal for me. I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 14 years old, and it was a real challenge. I was closeted and kind of, you know, there was definitely shame connected to reading, but I came from a family that had a lot of resources and had support, got me tested, and really put resources in place to allow me to thrive. So when I was approached by a funder to make this film, it just fit. And it was something that I was all in right away. 
So how did the film start out? Because it sounds like it may not have started out exactly how it ended up turning out. Like many documentaries, I think once you get into the weeds, you sort of get an idea about a giant you know, topic like early literacy. So how do you tell that story? You have to find out a way to get in, and the way in which we tell stories is through characters, because that's what makes us all care. I mean, I think a documentary is truly um, a compassion machine. It's a way that people are able to hear others' experiences in a way that they really can't in any other medium when you think about it. So we jumped into this giant topic, and initially we thought this was going to be a film about early childhood um, literacy and why kids aren't ready for kindergarten. So we were looking at kindergarten readiness, and we looked at educational technology and science-based, evidence-based technology that could really set kids up with phonemic awareness and success to thrive in kindergarten. Quickly into our research, um, and you know, thank goodness for the amazing Emily Hanford's journalism, but we listened to her first podcast four-ish and a half years ago called Hard Words, and I mean, she'd been doing many other documentary podcasts, but that was sort of her first one really looking at the failure of early reading instruction. So we looked at that, and then we watched the families that we were following that were putting every possible form of success in place for their kids, and they still got into classrooms where they weren't using evidence-based reading instruction. And so the kids were still in a situation where they were set up with some real challenges that they were facing if there wasn't explicit, systematic instruction. So Emily Hanford, for those who don't know, is, is a journalist who has been exploring, as you said, like some methods of teaching literacy to kids on a large scale in schools across the country that it turns out was not helping these kids. So the, the, it was not up to the, the standards of learning science and how to read. And in fact, was, you know, these kids were not able to read. And so you get into that in the movie. But um, I guess it seems like you ended up coming across in your character investigation, the same thing she discovered in her own reporting in a way. I mean, absolutely. And her, you know, I think really credible journalism gave us such a window into this area and opened our eyes in a huge way. And then a year and a half into filming, we met Kareem Weaver. And he is an activist working in his own community with the Oakland NAACP. So from Emily's amazing investigative journalism, and then meeting Kareem, we really had this lovely opportunity to pivot with the story, which was fantastic. And he was about to work with community partners to file a petition with the school board in Oakland to demand for reading instruction change, as well as some other things with a petition. So that petition and Kareem's story and his activism gave us this very natural story arc and line and there was something that was happening there was change that he was demanding with many community partners that he was working with so you meet this can you say a little bit more about Kareem and his you know what level is he you know what level of students he's teaching and what he was seeing um, and why he got into the activism he did well, um, Kareem is a unique, inspirational, and amazing human, and he's a former teacher, former principal, former person who trained principals, and then I think for him, it really, in my humble opinion, is kind of a hero's journey, right? He's sort of um, 
had some health issues of his own, lost his father, and I think really had a wake-up call and said, I am not going to do anything else right now except for focus on early reading instruction because I've seen it from my experience as a teacher and as a principal and as a leader in our community. And if we don't have the foundation that matters and that is key for us to function and participate in our democracy, you know, we're doing all these other things, but his whole piece is, you know, how are we really functioning in our democracy if we have the right to vote, but we cannot read about all the participants that we're voting for? (laughs) You know, how is it that we can fill out a job application if we really can't read and write with our spoken language. I'm interested in the title, Right to Read. Is that, I guess that's maybe the argument really in a nutshell, if you will. Like, it, But why uh, something being a right does take it into a different direction than, um, th- than other ways to frame it. So what do, you, what do you mean by that? How do you see that? Like what is the film kind of arguing on the score and, and why? Well, the right to read comes right from our transcripts. It comes from Kareem's words and he believes that literacy and reading is our greatest civil right. So it is something that we all have to not just know that is our right, but demand that it be implemented. And right now, we sort of think that we have the right to literacy, the right to read, but it certainly isn't happening. I mean, we have the data, we have the research, but we haven't taken that research and data and implemented it into practice. And tell me a little bit about his – tell tell the audience about the, his petition and what – how how then do we get there, right, to something like more like a right than the current status quo that he's reacting against? I mean, I think it, it, to get there, you have to demand change. So you can't be polite about it. And I think that is the beauty of someone like Kareem is he is unapologetic and he really sort of speaks truth to power. And he brings in the data, he brings in the research, he looks at the numbers, and he says, look, this is curricula that you have been using that has only been tested on a very small demographic in our population. If you really want to use reading curricula that is effective for all children in our country, do broader research that has more validity, that has more reliability. And I think what his hold mode is, is to really you know, push for change in a way that holds people accountable, right? So I hope the call to action in the film is for parents, for teachers, for, you know, the public to ask their leaders, to ask principals, to ask their school superintendents, what kind of reading instruction are you using? Is it evidence-based? Is it working for all of our kids? Because if it's only used for a very small portion in our country, and the demographics are fairly narrow, that is a huge challenge. I've been, you know, we've been following this kind of reading wars for a while, and it's been out there in the dialogue. And and yet, it seems like, you know, the recent um, a podcast by Emily Hanford got another round of people really talking about this issue. Um, it, but it seems like there's still one of the things that, that when I was talking to parents about that podcast and about this issue that are not maybe just just recently woke up to the to the issue that your film raises um it seems like it puts the onus on parents almost like the parents that i you know are like wait i thought a school would just by definition be doing teaching that that was proven and so it does seem to raise this 
this kind of parental responsibility, if you will, for all parents um, to question the the teaching methods. And I, I wonder if that's like um, uh, in this time, is that it's almost like, is that a healthy thing? Is that a, it's a hard position to put parents in, but it's also like an, it's an interesting moment we're in um, th- that that is, you know, the, it's almost like, what do you do when you watch this? Right. I guess is like, and is it up to parents as well to do it? Or is there some bigger structural change that, that really would make more sense in a way? Mm. Good, good question. I mean, I think, you know, parents have to see themselves as collaborators in their kids' education, right? So it's a collaboration with the school. And I think the piece, what we've learned through COVID is we've seen what has happened at home and our eyes have been opened. You mean parents have seen the teaching and what it is? Exactly, because parents have had their kids at home for almost three years, right? Yes, I have two kids myself, so I know exactly. Yeah. So you are seeing the kind of instruction that is being given to your kids, and you're also seeing the way in which they are learning. You're seeing the drills that they're doing, the skills that they're learning, and the way in which they're being taught. So I think in some ways, as Kareem so wisely says in the film, COVID actually, no pun intended, pulled a mask off of many of the things that were happening and the challenges that we were facing, and it allowed parents to see things with more clarity, I think. And I don't ever want parents to feel as though they are to blame. And I don't want teachers to either. I think really, you know, what we hope people walk away from the film with is I feel fired up and I want to take action, but I don't want any blame or shame to go towards parents. I want parents to feel empowered to say, this is a collaboration and I, these are my tax dollars. And change. If it can't happen at the policy level, I'm going to change it in my own corner of the universe and policy will follow because I will demand that. And that's sort of what's happened with the petition and the kind of grassroots change that I think Kareem has been fighting for. Say a little more about how that goes in the Oakland case. Well, in the Oakland case, they had eight demands in the uh, petition and four have been met thus far. But it has taken work, right? Kareem has worked with, I think, nine or ten other community organizations and nonprofits, including Decoding Dyslexia, you know, lots of other community organizations. They meet regularly. They follow up with the Oakland School Board. They are gathering data. They're sending information. You know, they are really continuing to raise the bar, do the research, and push the envelope for change. So um, I guess how hopeful are you that, you know, because Sold the Story, that podcast I mentioned by Emily Hanford, started, really kind of broke through, I think, and got a little bit of discussion. But, uh, you know, how hopeful are you that, that change will come and that your film will obviously, you know, add to this discussion? But um, it's, it's then again, her work has been out there for a few years now and, and it, you know, it's still a debate. Yeah, I, I feel very hopeful that change is on the horizon. Change takes time, so I think we have to be patient. But I feel as though Emily has ignited a movement, and we've been really lucky to now be a part of that movement. And I think there's a big groundswell, and I think the wave is just beginning to crest because things, the the emails and the DMs and, you know, the messages that we're getting is 
really overwhelming and phenomenal. I think people have been waiting for this story to be told for a long, long time. And so with Emily's groundbreaking podcasts, the four of them, or is it five? I've lost count. But all of the amazing reporting that she has done and then bringing a documentary that brings people in in another unique way to the stories. And again, this is really told with a civil rights lens. So this, I think, story and film has that unique perspective. I don't know how to ask this, really. But like, is there, did you have any... um at people advise you being a, um, a a white filmmaker talking about you know people of color and and trying to tell their story. It's it's in vogue to talk these days about how to best yeah, tell those stories. Yeah, how did you how did you navigate that? If you don't mind me asking. No, no, no. Such a good question, and I'm so glad you asked. We actually just talked about it as we were doing some press work in New York with Lavar Burton. We didn't start out wanting to make a film about black and brown families. I think the story found us and the story needs to be told. And we've shared enough stories about white kids and white families and why they matter. And so I think for me, as soon as we found Kareem's story, it was so clear that he was going to be central to this narrative. So what we did is we really created a process of deep collaboration. Kareem is a producer on the film. This is his story. I am a white woman. I wanted to make sure we got it right and that he understood the experience. And the same thing with the families that we followed. We really tried to work closely with them, and it was a different experience for me as a filmmaker because we shared cuts with them. We shared scenes. Didn't mean to interrupt you, but I mean, as a journalist, that's not the norm in a documentary. Usually you, you kind of, you, you have to be trusting. Control, yeah, yeah. No, but this truly, I think, having Kareem as a producer, I mean, I have, my creative team is outrageously diverse. So I'm probably one of three white people and I'm shepherding the film and helping it to cross the finish line because it's a skill that I bring as a filmmaker but I really want to make sure with Kareem with LeVar with the rest of the creative people on our team that we get this story right because it's their story I gotta ask then like is there a moment you can describe where Kareem stepped in and said like not this but this Um, He gave us a couple of notes just around family photos and material because he discovered, I mean, I think one of the things that happens in documentary filmmaking is it's a deep process of discovery, right? You're uncovering all this stuff. You're peeling the layers of the onions back. And he digitized all of this material that he had shot in the classroom with his kids, at home with his family. And so he gave us a couple of notes um, around family footage, but I think mostly in terms of the scenes and the way in which we were sharing the story, I think he felt really excited about the process and didn't give us any giant corrections. And I guess, yeah, I mean, he's, uh, I guess his presence probably just also just shapes your your collaborative feeling instead of the usual relationship, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Well, he's a natural storyteller. I mean, if you've seen him give keynotes, if you've seen him, you know, if you've done podcasts with him, you know that he is a natural storyteller. And then watching him document in the classroom and his own family's life, he narrates behind the camera. Well, even in the Larry scene, like he is narrating as he's 
talking to his kids and teaching. So he is a very natural, gifted storyteller anyway. And having him come on board as a producer is what makes sense, right? Because it gives him ownership in the process, and it's his story. There were several times in my conversation with director Jenny McKenzie when I wondered, what would Kareem Weaver say if he were here? Especially when I learned that he was more involved than a typical subject in a film. So I reached out to this educator and advocate to hear from him directly. And the first surprising thing I learned when I connected with Weaver by Zoom is that he was initially resistant to even being in the film. They had to grow on me at first. I, I was a terrible subject. Uh, I, I wouldn't talk to him. My, my wife didn't want to deal with him at all. My mom said no. And we just, you know, kind of grizzly bearish, the whole clan. But, you know, I guess that kind of wore us down. They stuck with it. And they got enough footage, enough footage to make some sense of it all. Now, what was the hesitation, if you if you don't mind me asking? Well, different parts of different for different people. For me, I'm just busy. I'm doing the work. I don't need to talk about it. Matter of fact, talking about it is not my friend. Um, you know, if I'm going to meet with the superintendent, I don't need a film crew on my hip. You know, and and I'm not doing this for clicks and giggles. You know what I'm saying? I'm doing this because we're trying to get something done for kids. And so I want to keep the main thing the main thing. I just didn't see the point. Uh, or I was too busy doing the work to be distracted. My wife is an introvert. She didn't really want much to do with it. Don't have me in it at all, she said. Uh, my mom's uh, reservation was she was concerned that they were going to have a negative portrayal of Black folks. Because a lot of movies do. They put us up as subject matter, and then they make us look bad. I've seen a lot of documentaries, and she has two over her time. That I was like, why did we even, you know, get involved in that in the first place? And so she's like, not again, not at my age. I don't have time for this. She refused to be a part of it at all just as a matter of principle. And then when the movie came out, she's like, oh, you should have had me in it. I was like, oh, get out of here, man. Come on. <laughs> but that was her reservation. You know, she tired of stuff to making us look bad um, in front of the world. So um, I'm glad to see that she kind of came around on that. And I don't think it makes us look bad. I think it makes it, it shows the reality of people's lives and how we're trying to get our kids to help their need to learn to read. And that's, that's, that's a colorblind thing. But as far as black folks go, I think it puts us in a positive light. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how important was it? You're listed as a producer, and I understand from the director that you, you know, you were involved in the in the film in a way that subjects typically aren't. How important was being a producer for you in this project? Um, for me personally, it was not important at all. They just asked me to do certain things and I did them. They uh, I would give advice and guidance and support. I would give my two cents here and there. And after a while, she was like, you're giving enough feedback. You might as well be a producer on it. You know, it was interesting after the we had a recent panel discussion and I was talking with LeVar Burton. And uh, they were talking about producing and this and that. And I said, yeah, they got me listed as a producer on the film. I said, and I, I was going off about how I didn't think it was necessary and all this. And he said, but how does it feel? And I was like, yeah, I just don't think it's reasonable and this. And I didn't do this and that. And, that. and he said, yeah, but how does it feel? said, actually feels kind of good. He just died laughing. Uh, <laughs> you know, I guess some of the creativity or editorial stuff and, you know, perspective on how a story should be told and the information, the actual substance of the matter, you know, so I get it. I'm, I'm honored that, you know, to be listed as a producer, I did what I could. Yeah. And, and can you give an example of a moment? I understand maybe something around like some of the family footage was something that came up. I don't know. Just anything where you just, you know, weighed in and said like, hey, I think this would help you out in the, in the project. Um, 
you know, part of it is about how the story is told. There's the there's the professorial version, and then there's the regular folks version. And sometimes we get caught up in the professorial stuff. And I think we kind of did that a little bit at first. You know, we talk about the science of reading. Sometimes people's eyes gloss over. <laughs> it's all a blur. I'm like, oh, actually, why don't we just talk about the real deal and, and what families are thinking this and that and how they feel and this scene looks good and how, you know, and so it's that type of stuff, man. And then also uh, there were some things in there that I believe might've been a little bit distracting. Remember, these documentaries are short. I, I don't think it's like an hour and 10 minutes, something like that. It's not yeah, very long. that's right. It didn't start off in an hour and 10 minutes. The thing started off maybe like an hour and 45 minutes. There's a lot of good stuff on the cutting room floor. And I was uh, encouraged by the decisions that were made. And I tried to weigh in as often as I could on that type of stuff as well. We don't have to have this if we have that. We don't have to have that if we have this. If you synthesize this, you know. Um, so it was those kind of things. Yeah. And I mean, I, in the film, it, it doesn't, I mean, you have certainly as an activist, you have to be out, you know, out there, I would imagine. And it, it seems like there's even a part where you've been kind of putting stuff out on YouTube in some way or having the, the work you've done out there in, in other ways. So I guess um, it seems like there may be some ways in which you were, you know, kind of out in the media in some way, but, but just not at. Yeah. I mean, the work, listen, so some of the work we do here locally and in the state, um, has to do with educating people about literacy, the science of reading, because there's this there's this lack of awareness about what the problem actually is. I, I consider like a toothache. You know, when you get a toothache, you're not really sure which tooth it is because it just hurts. It just throbs. That's how literacy is right now in America. We don't really know. Like it, you have to kind of calm the pain down a little bit to be able to say, okay, that part, it's that one right there. And that's what we've been trying to do and so that that's an ongoing thing. And that includes, you know, broadcasting. That includes um, journals, newsletters, meetings after meetings after meetings, town halls, meeting with parents one-on-one. It means engaging with the school districts and chart. It means, man, it means, so you got to be out there. And we have a website. Um, it's it's a tiny URL, but it, there's a site that we list like 50 different videos that were done for curriculum adoption committees, for them to reference. So we were already doing that type of stuff. And so when they came, they were more, they they saw that stuff and said, oh, so they're used to being public in some way, shape or form. So it was kind of a a easy transition to make or easy engagement to to get involved with. After the break, how Weaver hopes that schools of education will change to help guard against ineffective teaching practices for reading. Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students, to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers 
and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isteconference.org. You know, as a, as a filmmaker, when I talked to the director, she was saying that, you know, in some ways she sees um, your, your story as there's kind of a bit of a hero's journey in it where you sort of got pulled into to more and more um, work in your advocacy. I don't know. I just was curious what you, what you would say to that representation. A compliment. And I think it's also sad. Um, the compliment, I take it for the spirit that is given. You know, she's basically saying I did a good job and all the rest. That's fine. I take that. Thank you very much, Jenny. You did a good job, too. The sad part about it is, man, I gave everything I had. I mean, everything. For 20 years, however many years it was, classroom teacher, principal, doing all that stuff. Man, I, I lost my my first marriage over that. I I, I taught I would leave school every day dripping in sweat. That's how I taught as a teacher. Mm. And the sacrifices were no joke. And nobody said too much. I got a teacher of the year and a principal of the year. I, I, so I, yeah, I, there was some recognition. But for the most part, I was in, you know, anonymity. Nobody knew what I was doing. I had my, and so it's sad to me because, you know, most educators, the heroes are day-to-day in the classroom grinding in the schools. You know, um, and we don't even know their names. I, I hope whoever, if there's an educator listening to this, I, I would just say, keep on keeping on. Don't worry about who's there watching, listening. The kids are the reward. So for me, it's only sad because I know so many educators are doing everything they can and they never get the pat on the back. I had a boy or had a girl or nothing like that. That's just the way we go. We do this hero worship thing. So I appreciate the honors and the respect and all that. But man, for 20 some years, I was getting it in the classroom. I was like, Man, I, shoot, I come out this chair and teach right now. Like, that's my mindset, you know, and nobody really said a word except for the parents, the kids, the community, like lots of love there. You know, I, my godson is adopted from one of my classrooms. Like, there's big love there. But the outside world, they didn't know my name from, from Adam. A couple articles here and there, but it was, you know, obscurity, you know. But make a movie, all of a sudden, you got a microphone in my face. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, man, a bittersweet thing. What do you hope comes out of this film? Um, thank you for asking that question. Number one, a call to arms, a call to action. I'm hoping that people connect to the subject matter enough to, to turn off the TV for a second, to turn off the football, the basketball, the March Madness, the whatever other distractions from CNN, turn it off for a second. Let's see about our kids. I'm hoping that there can be a collective refocus on our children. When I say collective, I mean both sides of the aisle. I mean, I mean all different regions of the country. I mean all, all ethnic groups, you know, genders. The, every, these are our children, our collective, our children. I'm hoping that, that that is the number one thing that comes out of our film. You know, um, the, the old saying, um, how are the children? Matter of fact, the Messiah kind of greet people with that? And how are the children? Like, that's the question. How are the children? And I'm hoping that we take a look at that and are honest with ourselves and say, we can do better. So that means that, you know, as a result of this film, I'm hoping that school boards put literacy in the superintendent's evaluation plan. 
I'm hoping that curriculum that's not aligned to the research consensus gets booted <laughs> and they either change or they get kicked out of the schools that, that we have stuff that's proven to work. Our kids aren't guinea pigs, you know, that we get this stuff and materials that works. I'm hoping another goal to these universities stop taking all this public money, but not doing the public good. You know, the public good or the public trust says we're going to do what's, what's going to serve the greatest number of kids, um, which is who our teachers will be serving. I'm hoping that universities step up their game and realize that their methods classes matter and that teachers shouldn't come in, you know, as blank slates. They should come in with a certain level of experience um, and knowledge that they can serve kids on day one. Uh, I, I got a lot of hopes for this film, man, but but the main hope is that this puts it on the front burner of conversation and takes it out of the back, off the back burner. This should be our part. I know there's other things in the world going on. I get it. But man, what about our children? What about our kids? That's my hope for this film that they become the focus. And when you mention the teachers, uh, the the school of educations, to in other words, just to understand you that there's more education of these incoming teachers to know the science of reading, so that they wouldn't, you know, be be teaching things that don't fit that. Jeff, I put it like this: when I went to my teacher training program, I didn't learn how to teach a child to read in my teacher training program. The first assignment that they gave, and this is most educators will tell you this, they ask you to develop a philosophy of education. What, what, what? Look, I'm a brand new teacher. I don't know. What a, I don't have a philosophy. You tell me. But I'm hoping that these universities, you know, with their endowments and their brand awareness and their Carnegie, uh, uh, you know, uh, research designation. Okay, fine. Are you preparing educators to teach children to read? If not, fundamentally, you are undermining our families, our health, our democracy, um, uh, professions, our economy. You are undermining everything. If, if, if people can't read, they are subject to being manipulated, which oftentimes they are. They're, they're, they're subject to being diverted one way. To, it's like my cousin told me. I have a cousin. I have a few cousins, but one of them who was incarcerated for about 23 years, and he told me, he's like, cuz, um, teachers think they're promoting social justice, but oftentimes they're promoting social injustice because when you can't read, in many ways, people tell you what should be important to you. Mm -hmm. and, and, whether, and he said justice is colorblind. He said it should be. He said justice is. So when you apply justice, you have to think about what's going to be best for the group. And what's going to be best to, to, to mitigate whatever the challenges are. He's breaking this down to me. And I'm thinking, man, he sees it. After being incarcerated for 23 years, he's like, yeah, the people in here that when I was locked up with in South Carolina, they could not read. So whether they could understand the rules or the laws or whatever it was, he's like, they're just outside of society and they're subject to be used and manipulated. Now, it doesn't take a PhD. Uh, it doesn't take a master's of literacy to understand how important it is that our children are not being um, groomed for manipulation and to be used as assets in some political ploy or game or movement or whatever it is. Teach them how to read. Let them determine their own path, their own trajectory, their own course, their goals, etc. And And if we do that, we unleash a, a force of our own ingenuity that can solve some of our biggest challenges, whether it's diseases or economic challenges or 
you know, uh, diplomacy or whatever it is, because we have people who can actually do those things and think for themselves. So that's what I hope to get out of it, man. And 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 frankly, I think most people think that's common sense. Yeah, we want our kids to read. Okay, what color you are? You want your kid to read? And and before this pandemic, we thought that that was an, a no brainer that that was what was going on. Not realizing that the system is actually set up in a way that the people who are running it are the people who, you know. Reading came easy for them or for us. And so it's like, yeah, what's the problem? You guys get your act together. No, no, no. Actually, the majority of people need it taught a certain way that research says is good. So we got to figure out how to make sure that that simple knowledge and simple understanding gets codified, implemented, led well, and whatever else that our babies have a chance. Do you have time for one more question? I, uh, I know I'm taking a lot of your time. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You know, <laughs> I, I asked, you know, I asked Jenny McKenzie this too. It, and one of the things that, and you know, there's it, obviously like you're probably the wrong person in a way to ask this question, but you have been watching this issue for so long and fighting the, why do you think, you mentioned common sense. You mentioned that people want their kids to read. Why is this curriculum still in the main at so many schools when, you know, Emily Hanford alone has been putting out this, you know, journalism that's been getting some traction for years now, um, many years. And then before her, there were plenty of people raising the alarm as well. So what, what, what do you make, what do you make of its, the, the staying power of these, um, you know, false reading programs? Um, since you asked, I think learner's bias matters. Lack of vulnerability and leadership matters. And, you know, this pernicious commitment to othering people rather than looking at ourselves. So what I mean by all that is, you know, it's tough to see. It's like, you I don't know where you live, man, but, you know, I'm in California. I have a lot of family in the South. And I remember as a kid going to visit, every time I get out the car or step off the plane, I'd be, I'd gasp for breath. Uh, all that humidity would just choke me. I grew up in South Georgia. So, yeah, you're talking. Yeah. So, yeah, South Georgia. So, I, I was like, oh, what is this? What is this? You know, yeah. I literally couldn't breathe. But then about two minutes later, it's all good. Yeah. When you're in, you, you you know, when you're in something, it's tough to really appreciate the environment you're in. Mm. Learners bias is like that. So in other words, the people running the school system, it's, it's like humidity. It's hard for them to imagine something different. The way they learned it, they think that's the way it is. Not realizing they actually are the minority. The, the overwhelming majority of, of people learn the way that other folks outside of that room learn so it's hard but they run the schools the school boards the superintendents the, the you name it right that's why you get a per show me a person who has a relative with dyslexia or who had a challenge to learn to read or had to read and i'll show you an advocate because they get it. it's a fresh wound it's not a game you got they know that people are smart but they have to have it a certain way and they can get it so that's the first thing was our learner's bias uh the second thing is you know we have become professional explainers and we're distracted so one, we're so busy doing other things 
you know, who's in the final four? What's the what's the playoffs looking like? Who's you know who's the starting shortstop for my baseball team going to be this year? What's the AAA looking like? Whatever our stuff is, we're so distracted. You know, what are Kardashians up to tomorrow? Whatever, you know that reading and our kids, we we have we have lost focus on the main thing. Mm-hmm. And then those of us who who do find an opportunity to focus on it, like we're so divided that we tend to blame each other. We blame everything outside of ourselves for the outcomes instead of really looking at our own practice, our own advocacy, our own involvement. It's easy to point fingers at teachers, but that's not that's not it. You, well, who taught the teachers? Like we got to stop being so doggone busy and see about our kids. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line out of all of this. And 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 you can't make me hate my neighbor enough to get distracted off of this. I know what this cable news says. I understand this and that and the other. In, in all this world, there's always a new crisis. Look, at a certain point in time, we got to focus on our babies. And if your child can't read, it matters to me. One, my wife is safer walking to her car when your child can read. Two, my son probably has a better chance of getting a job if your, your child is out there, uh, can read and start a business. Like society is just richer, safer, and more friendly when people can read. Desperation breeds desperation. And we don't want that for anybody's kids. That's the thing. And the last thing I say is it's we're so easy to get manipulated and distracted um, by our differences. Our differences animate us more so than our commonalities. I, I and, and I'm not saying our differences aren't real. Sure, they're real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're real. However, however, a person who doesn't speak English um, and has a kid who's in school trying to figure it out, we my, we have the same, we have a similar interest. We want our kids to read. A person who lives in Manhattan or a person who lives in Compton or a person who lives in you know, uh, uh, Sioux City or, or, or wherever, like we all want our kids to do well and learn to read. So we have to actually embrace the things we have in common instead of animating the stuff that animating our differences that may very well be real, but we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. We got to at least be able to deal with this because this is like a base element of our humanity and as our society. Where is your optimism level right now? Um, Six and a half. Out of 10? Out of 10. Well, maybe even a seven. I, Is that better than it was a few years ago? I mean, before I didn't even have time to work. Let me tell you something. Before I say maybe even a year ago, I didn't have, I was afraid to even ask myself that question. I, it was scary because the answer wasn't good, man. It wasn't good. You know, like I say, we we just, I was starting to wonder, do we even care about this? But what I realized is, when people actually are stop and think about it, they do care about it. It's just that we're so busy, we don't stop and think. Like you shouldn't have to be, you you shouldn't have to have the money to pay for private tutoring to ensure your child learns to read. You you shouldn't. You you shouldn't have to be a Democrat or Republican or whatever. To, like we, everybody I have run into, without one exception, has always said, even if I disagree with the methods and the whole language, that everybody wants kids to read. That is a great place to start. So then the next question is, and which what brings me op, uh, optimism is, well, what's the best way to get there? Now, we're arguing about that, and people have some whacked out views, in my opinion, but we can engage. 
and we can talk. And at the end of the day, if you tell me, Jeff, if you tell me, hey, listen, you know, if you kick these rocks for the next five days, every kid in California will learn to read. Man, I'll be a rock kicking fool. You know what I'm saying? Like just like most people don't care about the um, the brand and this and that. They just want the kids to read. And if we stay there, like it's very hopeful. If we don't get fractured by, you know, all the tribal stuff and the politics and the regionalism and the race and our class and all that. If we don't do that and we just say, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Because if we deviate even 2%, our coalition will fall apart because we find something to argue about. But if we just focus on this, I'm optimistic we can actually get something done. Having talked with folks in Congress, superintendents and board members uh, at the state and the, and the um, city levels, you know, hey, it seems like people want to do And then plus having LeVar Burton involved, he says this is his passion project or his life's work. And he means it. I mean, he's I, I go to different things and everything. He shows up you know, with all his, his, you know, his professionalism and everything else, and he's in it to win it. Like, you know, and so he gives this a level of cachet that otherwise I don't think he would have. Uh, I call him Brother Burton, but he's, he's, Brother Burton is on point with this, and he makes this a priority, and he has made this a, I mean, reading Rainbow and all the rest, like, this is, oh, I grew up with that too, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not like some performative exercise, this matters to him. And so I think him elevating it puts it in a different stratosphere because people say, oh, Oh, really? Okay, let me take a look. You know, whereas if I'm just out here talking, you know, who is that guy? So it, I have hope, man. I have hope. And I and I have faith that if we keep our hand in the plow, we can do this together. Well, I really, I really appreciate, appreciate your perspective, perspective and thank, thank you for sharing your story, story today with us. My, my pleasure, man. Anytime. Well, no, 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 not anytime. Eight o'clock's a little early. <laughs> but I'm glad you I'm glad you uh you, you hit me up. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like these. If you like the show, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you listen. And please take a minute to give us a rating or a review. This episode was written and put together by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music this episode by Komoku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.